Well, this morning we are beginning a new sermon series. We finished up the book of Galatians last week, and uh, we're entering into a, a four-week series for this Lenten season. So the season of Lent in the church calendar is the, the 40 days or so looking forward to Good Friday and the crucifixion of Christ and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Christ, where we want to focus in a particular way on the death of Christ. And hopefully, you, you're aware, if you've been coming around for a while, of the fact that we always focus on the death of Christ. Uh, if we make it through a sermon without talking about the cross, something has gone terribly wrong, because that's the center of, of everything that we believe and hold fast to. But in this season leading up to Good Friday and Easter, it's good to have a particular focus on the cross and, and to think about it in a particular way. And so what we want to do over the next four weeks is just ask the question, why the cross? Why did Jesus die? What did his death actually accomplish? And so it's going to be a, a four-week series. We're going to start by answering the question with, why did Jesus die? He died to defeat injustice. If I were to say the phrases, black lives matter, or me too, or mention as I did in our prayer, Ukraine or Gaza, what thoughts would begin running through your head? Or, or maybe better yet, what would happen to your body? Did anybody's palms just get a little bit sweaty? Did you, did you straighten up your posture a little bit? Did you lean in a little bit and wonder, what's, what's he about to say? These phrases, among many, many others that we could add, uh, they do something to us, and that, that demonstrates that we are in a culture and in a moment that talks a lot and debates a lot about justice and injustice, but we have wildly different interpretations of what that means. And we can't seem to agree on almost anything. And so we fight about it. We argue about it. We, we create these culture wars and we, we get at each other's throats. The question that we want to ask this morning is, what does the gospel have to offer us in this? Does Christianity, does the Bible, does Jesus have anything to give us that is helpful or hopeful? And the answer, I hope you'll see, is yes, the gospel gives us much in this way. We're going to start this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, so you can turn there. It's, it's basically right in the middle of your Bible. It's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to, I'm going to jump around a little bit. This isn't going to be a really typical sermon where I just work my way through one text and explain it. Uh, the next, really, this series will kind of jump around a little bit more, but this morning we'll start in Ecclesiastes 4. It says, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. I love that each week we have this practice of verbally giving thanks for God's word because it can be a, almost awkward sometimes when you read a passage like that and then you're forced to say, thanks be to God. But God's word is good and all of it is profitable and useful for us. The first thing that we want to see this morning, there's going to be three points in this morning's sermon, the first thing that we want to see about injustice is what we just saw in Ecclesiastes, namely that Christianity is unflinchingly honest about the pervasiveness of injustice. 
Christianity is unflinchingly honest about the pervasiveness of injustice. Richard Belcher, in his uh, commentary on the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, says that Ecclesiastes wrestles with the disorder in the world concerning the breakdown of the deed-consequence relationship. So the book of Proverbs, which is really the, the fundamental uh, sort of foundation of wisdom in the Old Testament, has this what's called deed-consequence structure, where the, the basic outline is that Whatever your deeds are, there will be a natural consequence. And Proverbs lays out two ways that you can walk. You can walk in the way of wisdom, and you'll have good consequences. Or you can walk in the way of folly, foolishness, and you'll have bad consequences. And the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of interplaying with Proverbs. And the author is saying, wait a second, I'm operating with this proverbial wisdom of the deed-consequence structure, but I'm looking around, I'm seeing the deeds, and the consequences don't seem to have any correlation to them. If this is true, why is it that I'm looking at the world and I see good people suffering and I see bad people getting wealthy and rich and succeeding in life? And among other things that I see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, I see injustice everywhere. And the oppressed, who are often good people, have no recourse to do anything about it. Why? Because he says power is in the hands of their oppressors. And so anybody that they could go to to try to relieve their suffering is just going to continue oppressing them. And this is so bad, he says, that it's better to be dead than alive and better than either to have never been born. Can you believe that that's in the Bible? You, that, you're probably not going to find that like stitched onto any throw pillows at your local Christian bookstore, right? Ecclesiastes 4.3, it's better to be dead than alive and better than either to have never existed. The Bible's honesty about the pervasiveness of injustice means, first and foremost, that we should not be surprised at injustice. When we hear reports of racial violence or of sexual abuse or exploitation or injustice against the unborn or one nation trying to devour another, before we rush to doubt, we should probably think to ourselves, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> that checks out with the reality of the world, that people would do that, that people would act that way. Uh, the Bible gives us a tool for actually explaining that, and it's called the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin is the best explanation for the, the ubiquity of injustice in the world. The irony of our day-to-day, -day, we, we have these cultural commentaries explaining injustice, and the irony of much of the, and I'm going to critique both sides today, so just be prepared to get offended. Um, the irony of much progressive or liberal commentary on our social order is that it wants to find injustice everywhere while maintaining that people are inherently good. People are inherently good, but there's injustice everywhere. That, that doesn't check out. And, and they want to say, look, if people would just be true to their desires and be true to themselves and sort of express their desires, then everything would be good without realizing that it is the expression of our desires that causes injustice in the world. The doctrine of sin says that our injustice in the world that we experience comes from, from chiefly our disordered desires. That's what sin is at the bottom. It's having desires and affections that are out of whack. And so we come into the world and instead of desiring more than anything else to worship God and love other people and serve other people for his sake, we come into the world loving ourselves and using other people for our own benefit. And it's obvious if that's how we're oriented, that we want to use other people for our good, when we come into positions of power, we will use it to take from people rather than to serve them and to love them. And this, Scripture tells us, is why there is injustice everywhere. Now, I want to respond 
Because I know that there's a, there's, a, there's a vast array and a spectrum, even in this small room, of approaches to this sort of discussion. And so some of these things may not uh, pertain to you, and if not, that's okay. But I want to respond to three potential objections that could already be in your minds if you're thinking, you're hearing your preacher say, there's injustice everywhere in the world. The first is you might say, we shouldn't look for injustice under every rock. That's not helpful, it's not a good way to live, and it's not true. Like, every single act done under the sun is not unjust. Uh, I'll give you that objection. You're right. There's an author, Christopher Watkin. He's a philosopher and, and theologian, and he writes about the hermeneutics of suspicion. This may be a phrase that you've heard. It's the idea that the way we interpret life, that's what hermeneutics mean. We have an interpretive method of being suspicious all the time. And he says, when faced with a cultural phenomenon or argument or movement... The hermeneutics of suspicion first asks not what does it mean, but what is it hiding? Anytime you interact with another person or organization or message or person in a position of power, you ask not what does that mean, what are they after, but what are they hiding? The assumption is that every institution, every person in power, every leader, every organization, every religion is hiding white supremacy or misogyny or some other injustice. And this sort of thinking is everywhere in academic circles. Um, there was a, some of you may be familiar with the story. Um, I, I find the story hilarious just as an attempt to expose how this thinking is everywhere in academia. There were a couple people who decided to play an academic prank. And you can look it up. It's, if you Google grievance study hoax, you will find this. These, these people noticed that all the papers being published in academia are about injustice and oppression and sort of uh, like, you know, sort of these, these topics of because of certain parts of my identity, I'm being oppressed. And so they, these two people created pseudonyms. They created fake names and they gave themselves fake credentials. And they wrote 20 completely bogus academic papers that you can read. I'm not going to tell you what the topics of them are. Um, because we're in church, but you can read them if you want to. But they're absolutely absurd. And over the course of the year, they pitched these 20 academic papers to different academic journals, and seven of them were published in peer-reviewed academic journals. Now, anybody who has uh, ever tried to get an article published in a peer-reviewed academic journal knows how hard it is. And these fake names with fake credentials writing fake papers about grievance studies got 35% of them published over the course of a year. It's genius. What does it put on display that, that in academia, we're just looking for injustice under every single rock, and anybody who makes a claim about injustice can probably get a paper published. Now, don't hear me saying, again, that this is just on the left, right? Because on the right, you have your own kind of hermeneutics of suspicion. There, there are people who literally believe that the Democratic Party is a secret cabal of Satan worshipers, who truly believed this. It's everywhere, okay? This is not what Christianity advocates. The Bible is not saying that injustice is under every rock. The Bible says that there's this thing called common grace where even the, the most sinful people can do really good, genuinely good things. And so we shouldn't necessarily look for injustice under every rock, but what the Bible is saying is that injustice is so pervasive because sin has so thoroughly infected the human heart that we should not be surprised to find injustice under any particular rock, right? Whether it's Hollywood, whether it's the White House, whether it's Christian churches or denominations, we should not be surprised or shocked when injustice is exposed. Second objection, 
Well, the world's definition of injustice is different than the Bible's. Well, yeah, of course it is. Like, just because the world and the Bible have a different definition of injustice doesn't mean we should do away with the term or not talk about it. When we say that injustice is everywhere, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything that one particular political group or another labels injustice. And in particular, we want to say that we should not equate actions that the Bible calls sinful with identities that some secular people or groups call oppressed. We should not equate actions that are sinful with groups that the world calls oppressed. That doesn't mean that sinful people can't be oppressed. Of course they can. But we shouldn't equate these things. But nonetheless, even using the Bible's definition, we still find injustice everywhere because, in in fact, the Bible's definition turns out to be not narrower than the world's, but broader. Because unlike the right, the Bible says that there really is such a thing as social and structural injustice, systemic injustice. And unlike the left, the Bible is willing to say that the reason that that is true is because every single person is sinful. So the Bible's view of injustice is actually broader and more inclusive than any that the world has on offer. Third objection, if I'm losing you, again, if, this has, if you're like, this is not speaking to me, just think about what you're going to do for lunch for a couple minutes and then come back. Uh, objection number three would be social justice is a Marxist or liberal or progressive concept and not a Christian one. Okay, I gave you the first two objections, but here, not so fast. Uh, the Old Testament law assumes that injustice will get baked into the structure and system of societies, which is why it takes pains everywhere to prevent this sort of thing from happening. In many of your Bibles, this, this isn't uh, inspired, but you know how the Bible has section headers? Those weren't written by the authors. Those were written by editors. But in many of your Bibles, there are certain laws Uh, in the Old Testament, that have the header says, laws against social injustice. Uh, And in particular, we see this in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, beginning in verse 21, says, you must not exploit a resident alien, that's an immigrant, or oppress him. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, this is God speaking through Moses, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry, and my anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. God is pretty serious about injustice. If you lend silver to my people, he says to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. Four classes of people that I'm hearing that are protected by the Old Testament law, immigrants, widows, orphans, and the poor. If that sounds to you like some sort of Marxist social agenda, maybe you need to check your own presuppositions. What is this based in? It's based in a baseline Christian doctrine and a baseline Christian ethic. One, The doctrine, the image of God. The image of God is implanted on every single person, which means that every single person, no matter what else is true about them, is worthy and deserving of infinite respect and dignity and love. And second, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And this actually played out in history. So you guys have heard me talk a few times probably about Tom Holland, uh, not Again, the, super, or the Spider-Man actor, but a, a much older and more well-read Tom Holland. He's a British historian. He wrote an award-winning book called Dominion. And in Dominion, he talks about the reality, it really proves the reality that our, our current concept of human rights and social justice was basically invented by Christianity. And he says, uh, he tells this story that, that 
in the, in the Middle Ages, canon lawyers who were basically lawyers for the, when, when the church and the, the state had a much closer relationship, there were people who worked for the church to figure out how to write laws, basically. And there was one, a 12th century monk named Gratian who pulled together this huge concordance of laws for, for Christendom. It was called the Decretum. And Tom Holland says this, he says, no Christians had ever had such a resource. God, so they believed, wrote his rulings on the human heart. So until now, there's been no need to create this compendium of laws. And he says the entire law, this is quoting Jesus, is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself, rather quoting Paul. Here, Holland says, for Gratian was the foundation of justice, that the law was summed up in the single command to love your neighbor as yourself. Moreover, he says the Christian legal system would be based on the doctrine that all souls were created equal in the eyes of God. The image of God and the command to love others is the foundation of justice. Fifty years after that concordance was created, Holland says, it had totally revolutionized the thinking of medieval people. Age-old presumptions were being decisively overturned that, that great people, wealthy people, important people were owed a different justice than the humble, than the poor. This was turned on its head. He says the idea that inequality was something natural to be taken for granted, it was turned on its head because of these canon laws. And one practical outworking of this is the concept of poor rights. By 1200, the church laws said that if a poor person stole food from a rich person because he didn't have enough to eat, the poor person was not guilty because he was just taking what was owed to him. But the rich who were not giving alms to the poor were guilty. <laughs> now, whatever else you think about that, and you may disagree with it, so, uh, Proverbs 29.7 says the righteous person knows the rights of the poor. When we give to the poor and make sure that there's provision for the poor, it's not fundamentally mercy or compassion, it's justice. Because God says the poor have rights, and again, whatever else you think of this, can we at least agree that these laws were in place hundreds and hundreds of years before anyone had ever heard of Marxism or critical theory? This is not a recent invention of the left. It is a biblical invention. Social justice is a Christian concept, a biblical concept, that's, yes, distorted by other worldviews, but is at its root a Christian concept, and one that, tragically, the Bible tells us, is ignored and transgressed everywhere. Now, how does God relate to this pervasive injustice? If injustice is everywhere, and the Bible's honest about that, how does God relate to it? Well, he sees it, and he hates it. Uh, one of the first acts of injustice in the Bible is the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And Cain kills Abel, and there's much else we could say about the story, but when God comes to him, God, of course, knows what he's done. He says, what have you done your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What a striking and powerful image that the, the blood of the oppressed person cries out to God from the ground. And he hears it, and he sees, and he knows. And not only does he see and he know, and not only does he see and know, but as we saw in Isaiah 1, he hates it, so much so that he tells his covenant people in Isaiah 1, stop worshiping me and stop praying until you have stopped oppressing people. I don't want to hear your singing. I will stop up my ears when you're praying to me if you don't rid yourselves of this injustice. So here's the paradox, okay? 
Christianity teaches that injustice is everywhere, and it's therefore unflinchingly honest about it, but it also believes that the all-powerful God of the universe sees it and knows and hates it. So the, the natural question is, will God do anything about it? Will he respond? And the Bible's answer is a resounding yes. And for that reason, point two, Christianity is unfailingly hopeful about the end of injustice. Christianity is unfailingly hopeful about the end of injustice. This is an expectation that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And we trace the history of Israel. They're founded as a nation. They have kings. And the greatest king is King David. God says he's a, he's a king after my own heart. And he rules largely in a kingdom of justice and righteousness, imperfectly. But he was getting there. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells him, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is saying, you're going to have an offspring. There's going to be a son of David. There's going to be a king in your line who will reign forever in a kingdom of justice and righteousness. How would this work out? How would God do this? For that, we turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, God speaking, says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is, this is the Davidic king, the son of David. And now the king speaks in Psalm 2 and says, God said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. What is the expectation of the Old Testament? That God is going to give his people a king in the line of David who will restore justice by breaking the nations into pieces with an iron scepter and shattering them like pottery. This idea became particularly important in the imagination of the people as they were basically trotted through one oppressive nation to the next. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and by the time of the New Testament, Rome, and by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, the expectation in Israel for this Messiah, this son of David to come and throw off the shackles of Rome and restore justice is at a fever pitch. But, point three, Christianity offers an unexpected solution to injustice. It offers an unexpected solution. Jesus does not give the people what they expected. He does not give them what they wanted. He does not give them what they were looking for. But he gives them what they need. And he gives us what we need. He comes onto the scene and he starts working all these miracles and he starts teaching. And uh, I mean, he does some things as bold as like getting up in church and reading a prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah and saying, this is about me. And so people start to, start to whisper, like, could this be the guy? Could this be the Messiah? And so he goes up during Passover to Jerusalem, to the capital city, and all this culminates on what we call Palm Sunday when he enters into Jerusalem and the people rush ahead of him with palm branches and they say what? They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of who? Of our father David. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and they're thinking, maybe this is the guy. What are they saying when they're saying, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of David? They're saying, come crush Rome. We're sick of being oppressed. We're sick of the injustice of Rome. Come and throw off the shackles of Rome. Crush them, break them with an iron scepter and restore Israel, God's people, to greatness. And here's, here's the problem with that approach. Here's the problem with that kind of justice. It just creates new oppressors. As the powerless crush the powerful, they just become the oppressors. 
And the cycle repeats in history over and over and over again. And this is the problem with so much of the vindictive pursuit of justice in our own day, isn't it? The way we talk about this, we don't really want justice. We just want the people who are oppressed now to be the new oppressors. Jesus came to do something totally different. He came to give us a justice that doesn't create new oppressors. Here's the unexpected solution. Jesus does not end in justice by breaking the oppressors with an iron fist. He ends in justice by being broken with an iron fist. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he is coronated as, coronated as king, not on a throne of gold, but on a wooden cross. And he is given a crown, not full of jewels, but full of thorns. And he's not clothed with glorious robes, but he's stripped in shame and humiliation. The trial of Jesus Christ was the greatest miscarriage of justice in history. He had done nothing wrong, committed no sin, broken no law, and yet he's put through this mockery of a trial where, where the Jews and the Romans work together, which is to say all of humanity works together to put the only innocent person who has ever lived on a cross. And yet, it was through that very death that this king was coronated and his kingdom was inaugurated because by his death, what does he do? What does he do? He redeems the oppressed and he forgives the oppressors. <laughs> he redeems, Jesus goes to the cross and in his death, put to death by Rome, the, 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 the symbol of torture by the greatest superpower that's ever existed. He's identifying with the oppressed, inescapably, with the suffering. And he's saying, I am, I am one of you. And yet he's also bearing in himself the wrath of God against all oppression and all injustice. And this is why this is so important. This is why this matters for us. Because as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line between good and evil passes not between classes, not between black and white or rich and poor. The, the line between good and evil passes through every human heart. The reason why it matters that Jesus died to redeem the oppressed and take the penalty for the oppressor is because every single person in this room is an oppressor and every single person in this room is in some way oppressed. And when Jesus goes to the cross to save both, he's saving us. There's this way of viewing the world today that divides everybody into oppressed or oppressor. And the Christian view says, no, we are all both. The line passes through every human heart, and by dying to redeem both, Jesus creates this new kingdom, this new world of love and compassion and mercy and righteousness and justice. How do Christians respond to claims of injustice and the experience of oppression in the world? We aren't shocked. We aren't surprised. We aren't incredulous. We aren't cynical. We respond with empathy, with compassion, with love. We lament. Injustice, we grieve with those who are grieving, mourn with those who are mourning. We love others. We do our best to strive for justice in this life. It matters. We shouldn't grow so cynical that we give up. In fact, it's the very hope that a kingdom of justice is even now broken into the world that compels us to work for justice in this life. If you believe that in the end, the world's just going to burn up and nobody's going to remember anything anyway, what motivation do you have to work for justice? That's foolish. So we work for justice in this life, but we do so not, and, and by the way, we leave room to disagree with one another about how to get there. We can agree that racism is bad and disagree about what to do about it. We can, we can agree 
that the, the, this country's abortion industry is unjust and evil and disagree about what exactly to do about it. And we can say, you know what, your conscience is leading you in one way and my conscience is leading me in another. I'm going to vote this way, you're going to vote that way, I'm not going to vote at all. And, and that's okay. Because we're working toward the same thing and we're leaving room for people to exercise their conscience. And we do all this putting our hope not in the city of man, not in politicians or human beings, but in the eternal city of God that has its expression even now in the church of Jesus Christ. Which is to say that this place is to be a place of justice. And when people come here, they should experience a foretaste of the kingdom of God that is coming. And listen, just practically, okay, if you're here, this is for the, the, the Christian in the room who is maybe um, getting a little exasperated with their neighbors and maybe gets frustrated and like the, you see the yard sign justice and the social media activism and it just makes you want to like yell at people and get mad. Remember that when you see your neighbors and your friends doing this, they want the same thing that you want. They want justice. And you can affirm that in them and say, friend, I want the same thing that you want, and I don't think that you have the tools to get there. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about a justice that doesn't create new oppressors. And if you, if you are that friend doing the social media activism thing, and you're finding injustice under every rock, and you're raging against it, are you tired? Are you, are you exhausted yet? Can I invite you to consider that the solution to injustice is utterly surprising and that it's found in the cross of Christ and that as we look to him together, we can work, but we can rest as we gratefully anticipate his return when all things will be made right forever.